Hi there, this is Bob Eubanks, and you're listening to Fab Four Free For All. But doesn't everybody? And welcome to another exciting edition of Fab Four Free For All, the weekly all Beatles, all talk radio show on the internet. I am your moderator for this special episode, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me, as they always do, are Rob Leonard. That's me. And Tony Chiguardo. And that's me. And today we have a very, very special guest. You all know him. Well, the most famous piece of history that he is involved with is probably the newlywed game, although our special guest has... Don't forget card sharks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. stop. Thank oh, yeah. you. Many other That's things right. to his... KRLA credits. in Los Angeles. Absolutely. We'll get to that. And now he's just given it away. But our very special guest today is none other than Mr. Bob Eubanks. Welcome, Bob. Gentlemen, how are you? We are doing well. How about you? Good, good, good. Way upstate Wisconsin. I get you, to go home tomorrow. <laughs> are you in cow tipping country at the moment? <laughs> I'm in St. Croix, wherever that is. Oh, wow. St. <laughs> Croix, and it's not the Virgin Islands. <laughs> no, it's no, not. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> very, very different than the Virgin Islands. Wisconsin, it's Virgin Islands. So, Bob, we want to start off today by, uh, first of all, thank you very much for your, your time. We appreciate it. But we want to get right down to the heart of it. You were involved with the Beatles. Actually, you are one of only a handful of people to promote the Beatles on all three American tours. So we want to get to what you were doing prior to the Beatles coming over. Yeah, and I just found out recently, I guess I'm one of three that produced them all three years for whatever reason. But, uh, you know, I was working at the number one rock and roll station in, uh, in Los Angeles, KRLA, as you guys mentioned. And honestly, guys, it wasn't a very good disc jockey, but... I survived there for seven years anyway, but sometimes you're judged by the people you run with. And I was there with Casey Kasem out of Detroit and Dick Biondi from Chicago and Wink Martindale from Memphis, Tennessee. Wow. So, and this little twerp, Bob Eubanks from Oxnard, California. <laughs> so I had a, a group of young adult nightclubs, no booze, called Cinnamon Cinders. And I would buy talent from the GAC agency, uh, people like Stevie Wonder, the Righteous Brothers, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean. So I was a talent buyer, if you will, from that agency. And when the Beatles announced they were going to tour America, our phones just went off the hook. And the agency went to the only concert promoter in Los Angeles, a fellow by the name of Lou Robin, and offered him the concert and... He turned them down because he was used to buying Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald for $10,000. Wow. So these guys wanted $25,000, and he said no. Hmm. So I heard about that, and I went to the agency, and I said, I'll do it. And they said, do you have $25,000? I said, no, but I will have. So I went out, and I borrowed $25,000 on my house. Wow. And so I had... I had the money, but then I didn't have the Beatles, and I didn't have the bowl, and I couldn't get the Beatles without the bowl, the bowl without the Beatles, and they only wanted to play the Hollywood Bowl. So I finally got everybody together, and uh, that's how it all came down. I had never produced a concert before in my life, but that was the beginning. I did 100 concerts a year after that for the next 20 years. Wow. But you were only 26 years old at that point. I mean, here you are yeah. about to produce a show by what at that time when they came over, were the biggest band in the world. How did that feel to a 26-year-old kid? 
Well, the, the, that's the problem. I mean, you're 26 years old, you don't you don't really realize what you have, you know. And I had no idea that the concert itself would would become a historical event. I got a uh, an email from McCartney not too long ago because I, I I sent him a, a note asking him if he would like to participate in our little celebration at the Hollywood Bowl, and um, he very kindly sent me an email back saying that he would not be available, but he was talking about the bowl and how they didn't hear a word of their songs. Hmm. Uh, all it was is 18,000 people screaming, but yeah. it, it was a fond memory for him. And, and McCartney's a good guy. Boy. You could see that they're essentially lip-reading. You see moments where Ringo is looking down. Have you seen the footage, Bob, that exists of, of the show that has been Yeah, uh, I've circling? seen some of the footage. I've seen some of the footage, and I know also that Capitol Records, you know, they came to me and they, and they said, can we record? And I said, sure, as long as I can write the liner notes. Oh. And when they heard what they had, they didn't like what they had. So they came to me again in 65 and said, can we record? I said, sure, as long as I can write the liner notes. <laughs> but then when, then when they released the album, Beatles at the Bowl, I think it was 73. 77. 77? Yeah. Yeah. When they released it, George Martin had put the two together, and uh, the Capitol Records came to me and said, well, George Martin wants to write the liner notes. I said, okay, then write me a check. <laughs> and, and they did. <laughs> now, let's talk about the album. I was going to save that for later, but when the album came out in 1977, the cover obviously wasn't the, we didn't know it at the time, but obviously the cover wasn't the tickets you sold for those shows. What did you think when you saw the album and said, hey, this isn't what uh, we sold? A true reproduction. I didn't care. Oh. Well, my name was on it. That's what was, <laughs> you bet. You know, right? I wasn't, I wasn't going to argue about stuff like that, believe me. And, and we <laughs> should say that is you at the open, you know, and now here they are, the Beatles. Yeah, which was yeah. also very yeah. important. A quick story about that is uh, about two years ago, I was uh, getting my hair cut, and my barber said, have you heard the new Love album? I said, no. And he said, well, your voice is in it. I said, come on. So the lady next to me said, well, have you seen the show in Vegas? I said, no. She said, well, your voice is in it. <laughs> so I went out, bought the album, and I, li I said, sure enough. And there were five words here. They are the Beatles. <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. So EMI was getting ready to sell, and they didn't want any lawsuits, so... It was a very, very fortunate haircut that I got. <laughs> Once again, you said, cut me a check. <laughs> you bet. That's the way to do it. And, and the sad part is that's the only release on CD of that material. The Beatles, uh, for whatever reason, have not allowed the show to be released on CD for, for their own reasoning. I and, don't know why. And, Bob, you may not be able to uh, talk about this, but has there been any discussion uh, that you've heard about them moving forward with it in the digital age and doing something with the material? No, I, I heard nothing. They sent me a gold record. Oh, that's uh, nice. Oh, that's nice. I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story. I've never told a story, I don't think. In 1965, at the press conference, uh, we had the press conference at Capitol Records, and they were awarded gold records. So we went from Capitol Records to the Hollywood Bowl, and the Beatles left their gold records there. <laughs> and so I took two, and another guy took two. And <laughs> so I had a, a television producer that uh, was very nice to me and treated me very well. And so I gave him one of them. <laughs> and he took it out of the, of the case, the gold record out of the case, and put it on a record player. Oh. And it, was an, it was an opera record. <laughs> <laughs> 
It certainly wasn't he helped. Didn't even, <laughs> it didn't even put gold on the Beatles. No. no. Well, they, could, they couldn't afford to hold one back. I mean, the darn things were selling yeah, so well. You know I mean? Why, uh, the opera records were just lying around the office. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Bob, um, you, you had to work with Brian Epstein, obviously, to organize the, the show. What was your impressions of working with Brian Epstein as you know, promoter to manager? Well, he was very difficult at first. You know, I, we sold it out in three and a half hours without computers. And I very badly wanted to uh, get a second show. And so I was told by the agency I would have to call Brian. And I would call Brian's office, and the lady would say, uh, and the only time I was told that I could call him was 11 o'clock London time. Now, uh, folks, that's 3 a.m. West Coast time. <laughs> right. So right. I would call, and the lady would say, I'm sorry, Mr. Epstein is not available. Could you call back tomorrow at the same time? Well, this went on for days, oh. and I finally had enough. So the Beatles opened for an act by the name of Chris Montez yep. in Europe at one time. And so Chris's manager was a guy named Jim Lee, and he and Brian got along pretty well. So I put Jim on an airplane, sent him over to London to see if he couldn't convince Brian to do a second show. And he couldn't. Wow. So everything was rolling along, and finally, finally, I got to meet Brian Epstein. He came to California, and he was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel in one of the cabana areas there. And my attorney and I went over there. Here again, I was still trying to get a second show. And... The guy opened the door and said, Mr. Epstein is in the restroom. He'll be out in just a moment. Well, when he walked out of the bathroom, his fly was undone. <laughs> and I said, and my attorney says, that's a hell of an entrance you make, Brian. <laughs> and he was so embarrassed. He was so flustered and embarrassed. I could have gotten anything from him. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You have to clarify. You couldn't have gotten show. anything. I could, but no second show. <laughs> <laughs> right, but no, wow. That's actually That's funny. very, very funny. So, so did anybody ever come back and say, um, by the way, we left gold records on the table by accident? <laughs> yeah, what happened was that producer, like an idiot, he, he tried to sell it. And uh, oh. uh, the... Beatle organization found out about it, and and, and uh, they got it from him. So. Of course, that'll raise a red flag. <laughs> uh, just a bit. Just a bit. That's unbelievable. But you know, you you then the next year in '65, you then brought them back to the Hollywood Bowl, and you were very astute. You did what a lot of people didn't do. You actually sold the rights to the show to KRLA. You actually made more money than the Beatles did. I did. Yeah, I, I didn't make any money the first year because you know, in the afternoon. A big truckload of marshals came up, a big busload, and and I said, what are you guys doing here? He said, well, we're here to protect the homes up on the hill. I said, cool, I'm glad you're here. I said, who's paying for you? He said, you are. I said, oh, man. <laughs> so Yikes. I made a little money, but I didn't make much. But I got real smart second, third year, because I, you're right, I sold the, the promotion to the radio station. So it became KRLA and Bob Eubanks Present. Yeah. And it made them number one. It was, a, it was a good investment for them and me. And that was a sort of a unique move at that time, wasn't it, Bob? There weren't a lot of independent promoters and show organizers that were doing that and selling it back to the larger entities, were they? That was kind of a Well, interestingly enough, they didn't have too many disc jockeys promoting for them, uh, the first year especially. Second year, I think uh, Mitchell and Donahue up in San Francisco did, I believe. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I just say, wait a minute, you know, if I'm going to do this, 
But you're right, you know, and even in 66 Dodger Stadium, uh, I paid them 100000 plus 60% over something. They took $120,000 out. But I sat down one day and I started putting it together, the, uh, the cost. I mean, they had a 25% manager, a 10% agent. They paid for the opening acts. Those were the good old days. Uh, they had to pay for some security. They had a chartered airplane. And, you know, if they made five grand a piece that night, I'd have been amazed, you know. Wow. So, Which, uh, amazing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, I have a question about the, the radio station. You worked at KRLA, and then you sold them the rights. Was there any conflict of interest or, or even jealousy that you were, you know, selling to your own station, so to speak? Uh, the rights well, to the I had concert. an offer from another station, and they knew it, so they oh, stepped wow. the line right away. So, wow. uh, I all of a sudden became the best disc jockey in town. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and I wasn't, guys. I wasn't. <laughs> I've heard air checks. You sound okay. Uh, I, yeah. Last night I talked. I interviewed Dave Hull. You know your friend? He told The hullabalooer. He told me that he was given basically the Beatles fan club president, so, so to speak, for KRLA. Why weren't you chosen? I mean, you're obviously dealing with the Beatles. Uh, because that was the kind of a guy David was. I, I dealt with the, the, on the business end. But David was so consumed with all everything they did, you know. And maybe he told you he got a hold of their home phone numbers and gave them out on the yeah, air. Yeah, he did. Told me that. <laughs> Lovely. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, Mrs. Harrison gave him all of that stuff for her boys. But uh, that was Dave's world. That was Dave's life. He was that kind of a disc jockey. And so he was, you know, he stowed away on the airplane, for God's sake, almost got arrested. That's right. um, <laughs> That's true. He lived that. I did not. I was, uh, it was a business deal for me. Oh, okay. But now, interestingly, though, Bob, and just to sort of move forward with where your life would go, you know, you created the newlywed game and you... Um, oh, no, no, I did not create the newlywed game. Chuck Barris, that's no, right, Chuck uh, Barris created them, I'm sorry, that's right. Well, there, I'll tell you a fascinating story. Uh, there were a couple of guys who went out to lunch by the name of Nicholson and Muir, and they wrote on a napkin, husbands predict wives, wives predict husbands. And they took that to ABC. ABC gave it to Chuck Barris, who had the dating game on the air. Right. And right. Chuck developed the show. And Nicholson and Muir made 1500 bucks a week apiece for the next 20 years, I think. So. Wow. That's how that came down. Now, did you had you known Chuck Chuck hired you as host, or who brought you in as the the host? I, I auditioned, the... and when I when I went in to audition, they told me that they already had a host, a guy named Scott Beach, who uh, he was the judge in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh wow! Oh yeah. Miriam. Oh, sure. And yeah. So they said, "But go ahead and try out." And I was fortunate enough that there was a little Hispanic couple. He'd been out all night gambling, and she just reamed him a new one. And it was funny, and I got credit for it. <laughs> so Barris says, okay, one of you's going to host, the other will be the announcer. And they chose me as the host, and they chose Scott as the announcer. And on the first day, Scott went out there, being from a group called The Committee in San Francisco, and he sang anti-Vietnam songs to the audience, and he warmed them down. <laughs> so, wow. He was let go the first day. <laughs> yeah, not a smart move. <laughs> wow. You know, it's interesting because you, you're you very self-deprecating about your work as a DJ, but your ability as a host was unparalleled at that time. It was really just quite, you well, know, as a game show host, and your interaction and your capability of sort of just letting people go, 
Uh, we'll but I had to learn that. The, in today's market, I'd have been fired the first week. <laughs> wow. uh, I remember Chuck Barris coming to me after the first show, and he says, Bobby, we need to talk. <laughs> okay, what's up? He says, uh, you've just done something I've never seen anybody do before. I said, well, I do, man. He said, you went a half hour without blinking. And <laughs> but another reason I was so frightened is that 30 seconds before I went out to do my first show, there was a knock on the door, and I opened the door. Now, remember, I'm still in radio, and there stands two guys in suits, and I flash ABC execs here to say, good luck, Bob. Hmm. And I said, hi there. He said, Bob? Yeah. I said, yeah. He says, you're here by order to appear before the United States Government Anti-Payola Committee on September 16, 1966, and you damn sure better be there. Oh, my God. I was served a, a felony subpoena. 30 seconds before I went out to do my first television show. Oh, wow. And, wow. and they canceled the subpoena. I hadn't done anything wrong. Right, but right. But nevertheless, I had it in my pocket when I went out there. Oh, my God. That's Talk something I have hanging around. Yeah. yeah, have over your yeah, head. I learned, here's what I learned, guys, I, and it's very fascinating. I learned that, well, when I first started the show, I would walk into the dressing room, and there would be four couples sitting there ready to bear their soul for a toaster. And, <laughs> and I... And I said, okay, we're going to go out there and have some fun, see you out there. I had nothing, man. <laughs> then I figured it out that if I would go into the dressing room before each show and talk to each couple and ask them questions about them, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I had different people. The whole idea is if you take yourself out of the equation, people don't want to know about you. They want you to know about them. Right. That's what I figured out. And right. well, the moment I figured that out, uh, then the shows got funny, and then I didn't know how to handle touchy situations, and I started watching Johnny Carson. Be, ah, and, I was going to well, say that. Carson right. would that expression and say a thousand words, and so I learned from John, too, a great deal about how to do that. It's so great to hear you say that, Bob, because one of the things I was going to comment to you was that, aside from Carson, you were the master of the aside to the camera. Well, that I look, learned it from John. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I, he, uh, I didn't know him. I mean, we used to meet in the hallway once a week when I was doing a show at NBC, but it was no more than, hi, Bob, hi, John, hi, John, hi, Bob, <laughs> right. kind of a thing. Right. Bob, as the person promoting the biggest shows of uh, when the Beatles were the hottest tickets, so to speak, any celebrities uh, or anyone try to get tickets uh, after they sold out? Any interesting stories? Oh, or? yeah. You know, backstage, Debbie Reynolds, Lauren Bacall, uh, I got Michael Landon to do a dance party show for me <laughs> for, wow. for four Beatle tickets. Uh, <laughs> Sinatra's office called. Uh, you know, uh, Hedda Hopper. You probably don't remember Hedda Hopper. Sure, we do. We know anyway, it. I, I didn't hold it because I'd never done it before. I didn't hold enough tickets back for the press, so I put her in the last row of the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> her name was Hedda Hopper, for God's sake. I mean, come on. Yeah. But every, I'll, I'll tell you a story that I don't think I've told too often, and I'll clean it up a little bit for you. But when we sold it out, Walter Winchell, the famous journalist of World War II, was writing an article for a newspaper, a syndicated paper. And he put in his article that he has under good authority there will be a second show. Well, my God, the, the Hollywood Bowl people went crazy. They had kids everywhere. And so they called me and they said, could you get a hold of Winchell and tell him that there won't be? I said, well, I'll try so he was at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, and I called, and I said, Mr. Winchell's room, please, and he picks up the phone, he says, hello. 
I said, Mr. Winchell, my name is Bob Eubanks, and before I tell you why I'm calling, I said, I just want to tell you how important you were to me and my family during World War II, because you kept us abreast of what was going on, and we listened to you nightly, and, and we were so appreciative. Yeah. I said, well, the other reason I'm calling is that I just want you to know that you put in your article today that there would be a second show at Hollywood Bowl. I said, I'm the promoter. I just want you to know there won't be. Go to hell. <laughs> oh now, I cleaned God. it up for you guys. I cleaned it up for you. Yeah, did, I, he, did he actually ask you to do something that was anatomically impossible? <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. Okay. And everybody wanted to get involved. Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes, he was a disc jockey at the time. He said, I have under good authority there are some counterfeit tickets. Well, there were no counterfeit tickets. I mean, <laughs> everybody wanted to join the race, man. So wow. it was and, fun. But speaking of 66, though, with Dodger Stadium, you brought it up. You know, obviously the Beatles were on their third tour. It was a different venue, bigger venues. There was a lot going on in the Beatles world. You know, they had just oh, yeah. made the statement about being bigger than Jesus, yep. even though it was out of context. Yep. And now you've got them pretty much in the second-to-last show ever, and there was some trouble getting them out of the stadium. Can you talk about that a little bit, and how the Beatles got a little ticked oh, off? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, what happened? First of, all, yeah, first of all, you're right, and I will tell you this. So, in 66, Dodger Stadium, they were tired. They were tired of themselves. They were tired of their music. They were tired of each other, I believe. And Lennon was very difficult. So we put a... Uh, we put a tent behind second base. The stage was on second base. And, guys, we only sold 40,000 seats. Mm. Uh, we didn't sell the Centerfield bleachers, so we put speakers out there and gave those seats to the blind children. Oh, wow. So we put a tent behind the second base, and I had a Lincoln Continental in there. We brought them in in an armored car, and s- someone let the air out of the armored car tires while, <sighs> they, while they were performing. So I said to them, I said, after you get down off, you get in that car, we're going to go out to Centerfield Bleachers, and we'll get you to the armored car, and bingo. So they got off after doing their 30 minutes, jumped in the car, went out to Centerfield Bleachers. About 10,000 kids were out there. And so I, I kept saying, you know, the Beatles have, have left, the Beatles have left, and then everybody started to laugh, and here comes this Lincoln Continental. And it had been sprung. It was going, so they bring it back in, and we take them out, and we put them down in the dugout. And they were mad. Uh, John said, we want to go to a party. We're going to a party. I said, guys, i got 40,000 kids out there. Let's just let them leave. No, we want to go. I said, all right. And, and, and John and I got in each other's face pretty good. So I said, all right, I'll get you out of here. So I took them upstairs, and I put them in the back of an ambulance. And we covered up with a blanket. And I told the ambulance driver to just drive right down through the kids, and there'll be no problem. Well, he drives right down through the kids, and he gets free of the kids. He hits the accelerator, hits a speed bump, and the radiator <laughs> fell out of the ambulance. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Murphy's now, Law. Now, there's another wow. story. Somebody said they hit a uh, something that was on, but I, I saw it, okay? So now here come the kids. They walk in by the ambulance. Well, now, here comes the armored car with air in the tires, and it circles around the ambulance, and the kids realize what's going on, and we peel them out of the ambulance, get them into the armored car, and the armored car was covered with girls. And I remember the security guard was on, up on the hood, and he reached down, and he grabbed this little girl by the hair and pulled, and she had a wig on. <laughs> and I think, 
we thought you'd scalped her. You know? <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, from nowhere, and I have no idea where they came from, but the Hell's Angels showed up. Wow. They came up to Dodger Stadium, they circled the armored car, the kids backed off, and they led the Beatles out of Dodger Stadium. And that's the last time I saw the Hell's Angels or the Beatles. <laughs> wow, that's wild. Oh, wow. That is wild. Amazing. Obviously, you're in California, so it was a much more open-minded area. But was there a concern, Bob, from as a promoter standpoint with the whole Jesus incident in terms of any added security or anything like that? Or did you feel that because you're in California that the concern wasn't really quite as, you know? Well, you know, there's no doubt that the Christian population was upset about it. But uh, we had gone on sale and had the tickets sold long before John made the comment. Right. Uh, and the only heat that they felt was with the press when they got there at the press conference. It became a, a prominent question and um, conversation. But it didn't affect me, and no, I didn't add any extra security. It, uh, you know, the, the concert went well, except for getting them out of there. <laughs> that was the only problem. Right. Now, musically, Bob, you know, obviously... As a DJ, you're going to be following the musical trends because it's what you're doing as your job. But were you following them closely from a musical standpoint as well as just as a promoter? And as were you watching the changes and the? Not as much. I tell you what, I did feel though the, the moment in '64, they convinced other acts in England that this is where they should be, and the and the migration started. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did the Stones for two years. The first year, '65, I paid them forty five hundred dollars. Wow. In 66, I paid him $20,000. Wow. But Jagger was tough. He was tough to get along with. I always felt the Stones at that time were a bit jealous of the Beatles. Sure. And I sure. may be wrong about that. I don't know. Jagger at the time also, I guess it was hard because Jagger was a, you know, quote, businessman himself. You know, he was a, an, you know, an accountant and a money guy. So that must have been an interesting perspective yeah. for him. Well, I, I couldn't get him off the stage. I told him, I said, Mick. I said, when you guys leave the stage, leave the stage. I said, mm. I'll get you out of here if you can do that, because that was the biggest problem back then. But he would lollygag on stage and, and touch hands and lollygag. Oof. So the last time I saw the Stones, they were in a station wagon with their feet against the roof so it wouldn't cave in. Wow. With about 5,000 girls around him. <laughs> Piled on top of it. Now, did you did you stay as a promoter, Bob? You'd gone on to, to do the newlywed game. Yeah. But you stayed in the promotion business yeah. as well? Oh, yeah. You know, the newlywed game took 35 days a year. Ah, and, okay. Yeah, I stayed as a promoter. I stayed uh, in the rock and roll business and did the whole English thing, you know, with the Herman on Hermits and the Dave Clark Five and all of that. Until uh, 1968, I sold the company because the whole San Francisco drug thing was coming in. Yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't want to deal with it, so I sold the company and got out until 72. I'll tell you a, a wonderful story. I did Herman and the Hermits at Anaheim Convention Center, and uh, I had to buy an opening act, and I had to pay too much for the opening act, and I didn't like it. So anyway, I walk into the opening act's dressing room, and there's a bunch of underage girls in there. And I said, this won't work, guys. Out, out. <laughs> so I get all the girls out. And they were mumbling and mumbling and the whole thing. So I look up pretty soon, and here comes the drummer of the opening act pulling his bass drum case, and it's making grooves in the floor. Oh. And I couldn't figure out what's going on. So I walk up, and I kick the top of it off, and there's a little girl <laughs> in the drum case. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and... 
I said to the guy, I said, you'll never work for me again. He says, you're right, you winker. We'll never work for you. That was Keith Moon of the... <laughs> Leave it to Keith to have a girl in his drum That bass. is brilliant. That's oh, a great man. story. And they never worked for me either. <laughs> uh, Bob, uh, we're all collectors, uh, the three of us. Uh, were there any posters or memorabilia from... Uh, promoting the shows, uh, ads in the newspaper. God, I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> well, <laughs> we were you, know what I, you know what I've done? There were never posters. And if you see a Beatle poster, there were never posters, okay? I didn't need them. But I did do a full-page ad in the L.A. Times. And I have now taken that ad and turned it to a poster. We've had a 1,000 of them printed up. And they're going to be, and that's all we're going to produce. They're going to be signed. I'll sign them and numbered. And if any of your listeners are interested, you just go on to bebeatles.com. Bebeatles.com. A thousand's not a lot. <laughs> For Beatle fans, no, yeah, they may lot. need more. Second pressing. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know. Once I number them, there will be no more because it's a letter of authenticity, and I, that's not fair to the buyers sure. to keep printing them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it'll be only a thousand. And then there's some uh, 8x10 photographs that I had. So we're selling kind of a little memorabilia package. It's bebeatles.com. And, and you also, uh, Bob, have a book out that uh, we'd like to tell our listeners about as well. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? That was, a, you know, it's so hard to write a book, Matt. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, five, six years ago I wrote the book. And it's called It's in the Book, Bob. And it's stories about all of my career. But the problem with writing a book, you've got to have a big ego. You fly to Indianapolis Thursday, you do all the radio shows and television shows Friday morning, and then you go to Barnes & Noble Friday night, you sell 200 books, you come home on Saturday. That's three days out of your life yeah, for 200 right. books. Right. And it's a pain in the patoot, you know? <laughs> so, I, you know, my oldest son's 55 and my youngest is 11. And wow. I've got a little boy to raise, and so I, I try to stay home as much as I can. Well, I have to ask you, speaking of patoot... We do have one question that we would be remiss if, if we, we didn't, didn't ask. Oh, we, didn't, we have to ask uh, you. Uh, okay, <laughs> so, I'll tell you the story. Go ahead. So, so, okay. Well, we, ha we have to ask you, know, so, where specifically was the weirdest place uh, you, you ever, ever got the urge to, to make, make whoopee? Yeah, nah. Okay, look, here, here's what happened. Here's what happened. I had a little girl named Olga, and I asked the question, where's the strangest place you've ever made whoopee? And Olga gave me an answer that was inappropriate. And first of all, it never got on television. Right. And uh, I said, oh, no, no, Olga, Olga, I need a location. <laughs> she gave me a location. Well, the word got out that supposedly Olga, Olga said in the butt, Bob. And she didn't. It was worse. Okay. And, but it will be on my tombstone. I, I hear it ten times a day. You know? I hope that's but, not on your tombstone in the butt, Bob. Yeah, but, but I will tell you this. Uh, when they did the movie of the Chuck Barris, uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, right. they called Olga, and they said, Olga, we're going to put that clip in the movie. And she says, oh, no, please, I'm a grandmother. Don't do that. <laughs> and they said, well, it's worth $5,000. She said, you go right ahead and put it in the movie. There. <laughs> that's brilliant. That oh, is brilliant. Man. But... In the butt, Bob, never happened. It was worse, guys. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's anyway. a wonderful case where the myth has actually been toned down from what the reality yeah. was of the incident. That is oh. just great. 
I've had calls from 60 Minutes. They were arguing about it backstage. I had a call from a Top Gun pilot uh, one time in Iraq. I mean, it was crazy, man. Wow. Well, we, we do appreciate your time. We want to tell people again that if you want a limited edition poster reproduction of the ad in the L.A. Times for Hollywood Bowl, 1964, I believe. Yeah, it's beautiful. Oh, it's 1965. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, it is www.b, as in boy, well, as in Bob, he as in, Eubanks. well, I'll say Eubanks, but, you know, they would think you. So right. bebeatles.com. Uh, you could also pick up a copy of Bob's book. It's in the book, Bob. And we, we really do appreciate all your time. Uh, thank you, guys, you know, and uh, uh, it's fun to talk about them. It's fun to talk about them. Uh, we do appreciate Bob Eubanks being on the show, a very special guest. Uh, so for this edition of Fab Four Free For All, this has been your moderator, Mitch Axelrod, and joining me has been Rob Leonard. That's me. And Tony Chaguardo. And that's me. And our special guest, Bob Eubanks. We appreciate it, Bob, and we'll talk to you soon, hopefully. Thank you, guys. All right, and take care. best of luck with the book and the posters. I know our, our listeners are definitely going to be interested. So Sounds good. We'll I talk to you soon. very much. Take care. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chaguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All. And, and Bob, on an, on an aside, man, it's absolutely delightful to be talking to someone who was part of our, part of our lives. Part of our lives. I mean, we grew up with you in the living room, you oh, know, all the time. Thank so, you so much for thanks your time. Very much. I have one more question, Bob. We're all three yeah. collectors. You were a major promoter in Los Angeles. Did you ever, like, record the shows and do anything with them, or was it just, you no, know? No, I never did. Okay, because... I'll tell you a story. I, I, have you seen uh, Chuck, uh, the Beatles books? Gunderson. Gunderson. He's yeah, a good, good guy. guy. I wrote I wrote the uh, intro for those books. Yes, and I just think they're marvelous. I, I really do. But I learned so much looking at those books. Yeah, they're beautiful. And, and I just thought he did a great job with them. I you could actually good. work out with them too if you lift them up in oh both arms. God, I mean, so my God, they're thirty pounds each. You know. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, yeah. believe me. It's like the Hullabaloo's book. I took it on an airplane. I had to pay for an extra bag check. You know? Well, so. that's six hundred pages. I was like, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't, it's funny because when I got the book, I don't know much about Dave Hull because he's a Los Angeles radio guy and, and I'm from New York. David, why did you make it so big, man? <laughs> you know, and, and the problem is his market is limited because he's a L.A. guy. Right, you know? right, right, uh, right. But good God, but he's a great guy. Oh, uh, he was so guy. much. He was so much fun. We do, did he I know? tell you the Dr. Pepper story? Yes, he did. And I'm not sure. Yeah. If, is that a, a true story? Because it you almost doesn't sound I, true. Lennon yelled out as he was leaving the stage, we're nothing but a Dr. Pepper pickup band or something like that. <laughs> wow. I so, wonder if Paul misheard him as Sergeant Pepper. Maybe that's how the whole thing started. <laughs> well, all I know is that they were Dr. Pepper fanatics. They really liked it, and they wanted it in the dressing room. Yeah. And, uh, we'll you know, the writer was so simple. You know, I had a case of Dr. Pepper, a, a uh, adequate sound system and a TV and I said get your own TV <laughs> but we'll get you some girls <laughs> right <laughs> Keith Moon will bring them <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and have you read the Ivor Davis book 
No, we haven't read it yet. Uh, it just came out. Right? Oh my God! You got to read the Ivor Davis book. Oh, it cool. is fascinating. Yeah, he was in charge yep. of uh, writing John's itinerary, I believe, for girls' magazines like teen magazines. Oh, really? Wasn't well, he? Yeah, he had full access, man. Right. He had full access to him. But the, his his description of the Elvis meeting and all of that was just magical. I mean, oh, it really wow. is good. So yeah. he was present for the Elvis meeting? Is that a... Yeah. Wow, that's cool. That's, that's very the biggest cool. He was present for everything, man. You know, you know it's not, sometimes it's not very flattering, but... But it was fascinating. Man. Yeah, when you have full yeah. access, it gets it can be unflattering, but sure to see everything that's going on from the inside out. But you know, they wanted to meet Jane Mansfield. That was their big thing. Well, they did actually, and there's a picture, a famous picture of George throwing uh, water or drink. drink. Yeah, yeah, at the photographer. The thing is, though, Paul wanted to meet Jane Mansfield, but he didn't go to that meeting because he had another meeting he'd like to make. So. <laughs> And Mamie Van Doren walked in, and Jane Mansfield and Mamie Van Doren had a competition going on, and George throws a drink and hits Mamie Van Doren, and the damn place almost turned into a riot, so they got out of there. So. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, that, uh, there, there are uh, some good perks to being a Beatle at, at 21 years old in 1964, right? I guess. Yeah, I guess. You bet. You bet. Wait till you read about Atlantic City. That's the hot one. <laughs> we have to get an Ivor. Uh, I think Ivor's book came out this year. Okay. So yeah, right. it just came out. Yeah, so we'll uh, have to get him on the show it, as well. Oh, man. Yeah, get him on the show because the book is fascinating. It really is. Excellent. Excellent. When I was out promoting the show, I, I, I couldn't even bring myself to mention Billy Ray Cyrus on a Beatles show. But you had an achy, breaky heart. Did he really? He wow. came out, did Hard Day's Night, and he, and he did Long Tall Sally. And uh, Which, by the way, uh, do you know why they always ended it with Long Tall Sally? No. no. Well, no. according to Ivor, the reason they did that is that the first song that McCartney ever sang in public was Long Tall Sally. Hmm. Hmm. And, and he had a real... A, a, a real emotion tied to that song. It, you have to wonder For if it was all three years. You have to wonder if it was almost like a superstition too, in a way. I don't know. You know, but all three years that they toured, they uh, they always ended with "Long Tall Sally," at least on my dates. And as a matter of fact, when Paul closed out Candlestick uh, last week, uh, Long Tall Sally. he did "Long yeah. Tall Sally." I mean, he, you know, seventy. What is he? Seventy-two now. Yeah, and he yeah. he. You know, as best he could, he he did a nice version of it. So it's kind of cool. He must still have an affinity for it because yeah. he could have done anything else from the from the show, but he did that. Yeah. I'll leave you with one thing. If I sound a little sad, the gardener cut our cat's tail off with a weed whacker. What? Oh no! Oh my god! Yeah. You gotta be kidding! Oh, I, god! Yeah. I oh. took the cat to Walmart because they're the biggest retailers in the country. Oh! Oh! oh. <laughs> he set us up. We just got we set, set up, up by Bob Eubank. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, we should have said that coming. That no. <laughs> oh, my oh, God. That was good. We walked into that. <laughs> well, you just became and the it, tag on our show, by the way. 